Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Now much like cold fusion, driverless vehicles, and colonies on Mars, the idea of using animals to eliminate the need for human donors of cells, tissues, and organs has long thought to be a scientific breakthrough just out of reach. One of the pioneers of heart transplantation, Norman Shumway, once said, quote, Xenotransplantation is the future of transplantation and always will be, end quote. But as we'll learn, xenotransplantation may not be as far away as you might think. So let's stop monkeying around and pig out on some knowledge in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Today we're going to look at the long and often strange history of xenotransplantation. So let's start by considering the word. Xeno comes from the ancient Greek word for stranger or foreigner. Now a number of English words other than xenotransplantation use this root, including xenophobia or fear of foreigners, or xenomorph, which literally means foreign shape, but is probably most familiar to listeners as the face-hugging, acid-blooded, chest-bursting creatures in the film franchise Aliens. So in the broadest definition, xenotransplantation means the transplantation of living cells, tissues, or organs from a foreign species. Of course, in this episode, we will focus only on humans as the recipient. But as you'll see, the donors have come from a wide swath of creatures from the animal kingdom. The concept of mixing humans and animals has existed throughout human history and can be seen as early as prehistoric cave drawings depicting a human with the head of a bird found in the Lascaux Cave in France dating back to 15,000 BCE. It can be seen in Egyptian deities, most famously the Great Sphinx of Giza, which is a lion with the head of a woman, in Hindu gods such as Ganesha, who has the head of an elephant, and in Greek mythology like the Minotaur, a man with the head of a bull, or centaurs, who are horses with the trunk and head of a man. In fact, one of the older examples serves as the symbol of the International Xenotransplantation Association, the Lamassu. This was a protective deity from the ancient Sumerian kingdom, an empire centered around what is now northern Iraq, between the 9th and 7th century BCE. The Lamassu had the head of a human and the body of either a bull or a lion, with the wings of a bird. You may not know it, but you've probably seen an image of one of these before. If not, hit pause and Google an image. Okay, so now let's get into some historical events. The first xenotransplant ever documented is considered to be the transfusion of animal blood into humans, which occurred on June 15, 1667, when French doctor Jean-Baptiste Denis and surgeon Paul Emerez injected the blood of a lamb into the veins of a 15-year-old boy. Amazingly, the boy survived, likely due to the minimal amount of blood given. But Dr. Denis' next two patients did not survive the transfusions, including one named Antoine Moroy, who received blood in the hopes of curing his madness. The patient's wife, at the encouragement of Denis' detractors, sued the doctor. However, on April 17th of 1668, the court concluded that the patient had died from arsenic poisoning by his wife. Still, by 1670, the French Parliament had prohibited transfusions, quickly followed by the English Parliament and the Pope. Sporadic attempts continued over the next couple of centuries until Scottish physician John Henry Leacock in 1816 showed via experiments in animals that donor and recipient must be the same species. This led to the first documented human blood transfusion in 1818 by British obstetrician James Blundell. This was a woman with postpartum hemorrhage. Sadly, the patient did not survive. Now, you may have noticed that I conspicuously used the phrase first documented, as the American surgeon Philip Singh Physick, 
who sounds like an interesting character in his own right, performed a successful blood transfusion in 1795, but didn't bother to publish it, and so Blundell tends to get credit as the first. Let's move on to tissues. There are a few reports of bone being transplanted that date back to the 1500s. In 1501 CE, Iranian surgeon Mohammad Baha al-Dawla published The Quintessence of Experience, in which he described treating osteomyelitis of the skull, which is infection of the bone. A portion of the affected bone was cut out and replaced with bone from a dog. A slice of cucumber was then applied to protect the brain. Now, centuries later, in 1668, Dutch surgeon Job van Meekeren reported a case of successful xenotransplantation, again using bone from a dog to repair a skull, which was done by a Russian. After a little digging, I discovered that Meekeren heard this tale from the Reverend Engelbert Sloot, who received a letter describing the bone grafting from a missionary in Moscow, so probably not the best source material. In the 19th century, Physicians began attempting skin grafts from various animals onto humans, including rabbits, dogs, pigeons, and frogs. While some proclaimed success, this was probably more to do with temporarily aiding in the healing of ulcers by covering and protecting the site rather than true grafting. What is a bit strange is that, while some were free grafts, meaning cut completely from the animal, some were so-called pedicle grafts, meaning the tissue maintained a connection to the animal to retain blood supply until the graft took. And so the donor, for example a sheep, would have to be strapped immobile to the patient for several days. <laughs> now some of you may be thinking that many of the species used as donors would have hair, feathers, or fur, which is less than ideal when the recipients, i.e. humans, do not. Somehow this did not deter our intrepid surgeons. I do wonder what the patients thought, though. Now we're going to get into one of the stranger stories in the history of xenotransplantation, which is the grafting of animal testicular tissue. In 1889, the French-American physician and physiologist Charles-Edouard Brown Saccard, at the age of 72, gave himself a subcutaneous injection of extract of crushed testicles from dog and guinea pig. The claim was that this restored strength and vitality, which quickly captured the imagination of the public. Now, while hundreds of men tried this treatment, he was caricatured in the press as a quack, promising potency to enfeebled old men. His name may ring a bell to some listeners, as there is a syndrome named after him. In Accidental Injuries of the Spinal Cord in Farmers Cutting Sugarcane in Mauritius, an island in the Indian Ocean east of Madagascar where he was born, Brown Sicard noted that damage to one half of the cord led to paralysis and loss of proprioception, meaning awareness of the position and movement of the body, on the side of the injury, and loss of pain and temperature sensation on the opposite side. This is now known as Brown-Sicard syndrome. Now, the good doctor may be best known for his contributions to neurology. Some also consider him one of the early fathers of the field of endocrinology, in part due to his concept of hormone injections, even if they came from guinea pigs and dogs. Now, Serge Voronoff, a French-Russian surgeon, took this a step further. He wanted to rejuvenate men by transplanting the testicles of chimpanzees and baboons. On June 12th of 1920, he transplanted slices of chimpanzee testicle into the scrotum of his patient. Within three years, 43 men had received a testicular xenotransplant. By 1930, that number had swelled to 500. Voronoff also transplanted ovaries of female apes into women to alleviate the symptoms of menopause. By the time of his death in 1951, 2,000 human patients had received transplanted ape tissues. 
In the U.S., mainly in Texas and Kansas, a man named John Brinkley also provided such xenotransplants, although his chosen donor was the goat, as he'd been convinced by a local farmer of its sexual potency. Brinkley was an interesting character. In fact, so interesting, I think we'll take a little detour to tell his story. A sort of in-show suture tale. So let's get to it. John Brinkley's father was a poor mountain man who lived and practiced medicine in North Carolina and served as a medic with the Confederate States Army during the American Civil War. John was born in 1885 in the town of Beta, North Carolina. After a rural education in a one-room log cabin, he went to work for Western Union as a telegrapher, then later for a couple of railway companies. By the time he was 22, Brinkley was posing as a Quaker doctor, doing medical shows in small towns and hawking patent medicines. He eventually settled in Chicago and enrolled in the unaccredited Bennett Medical College, which focused on eclectic medicine. This was a uniquely American branch of medicine which used non-invasive therapies such as botanical remedies, other substances, and physical therapy as treatment. The name refers to the concept of employing whatever was found to be beneficial to patients, from the Greek word eklego, meaning to choose from. Brinkley only completed three years before debt and a growing family forced him to return to the South. In 1912, he bought a certificate from a diploma mill known as the Kansas City Eclectic Medical University and then set up shop in South Carolina with a partner, calling themselves the Greenville Electromedic Doctors. They would inject patients with colored water which they passed off as salvarsan, the first effective medicine for syphilis which had only been discovered a few years prior, or as, quote, electric medicine from Germany, end quote. The practice only lasted a couple of months and Brinkley left town with a number of unpaid bills. He bounced around for a while avoiding debtors, lawmen, and ex-wives before opening a 16-room clinic in Milford, Kansas in 1918. It was here where he began to transplant goat testicles into the scrotums of men and abdomens of women. As Hinckley often operated while intoxicated, with little surgical training and in less than sterile conditions, you may not be surprised to learn that a number of his patients died. He was sued more than a dozen times between 1930 and 1941 for wrongful death. But before you think this would be the end of his career, it was, in fact, just about to take off. You see, his first goat gland patient's wife gave birth to a baby boy, which drew attention from major newspapers around the U.S. Brinkley would take this newfound fame to expand his business, claiming that these xenotransplants not a word in use at the time, to be clear, could cure 27 ailments from dementia to emphysema to flatulence to influenza to insomnia. You get the idea. He started a direct mail ad blitz and hired an advertising agent. Brinkley also drew the attention of the American Medical Association, who sent an undercover agent to investigate his clinic. They found a woman there hobbling around who had been given goat ovaries to cure her spinal tumor. This put Hinckley on the radar of Morris Fishbean, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, who spent his career chasing down medical quacks, but we'll get back to him in a minute. In 1920, Voronoff, of monkey testicle transplant fame mentioned earlier, was in a Chicago hospital to demonstrate his own technique. Brinkley showed up uninvited and was barred at the door, but set up his own demonstration on 34 patients, many of whom were prominent members of society, while the press looked on only furthering his growing fame. He then went to Los Angeles, receiving additional media attention, which even led to Brinkley inspiring a film industry term. Goat glands came to mean the process 
of graphing talkie sequences onto silent films to make them more marketable. Wild. By 1923, Brinkley had built his own radio station, KFKB, standing for Kansas First, Kansas Best, which he used to speak for hours each day promoting his goat gland treatments. And in addition to the station, Brinkley used his wealth for civic projects in Milford, including the building of a new sewage system, sidewalks, electrification, and even a baseball team, which was called, unsurprisingly, the Brinkley Goats. But eventually, his house of cards began to collapse. In 1930, the Kansas Medical Board revoked his license, and his radio license was lost six months later. In response, Brinkley launched a bid to become the governor of Kansas, and despite being a write-in candidate due to late entry, received 29.5% of the vote. After losing the gubernatorial race again in 1932, Brinkley moved to Texas near the border with Mexico and created a new radio station to promote all manner of quackery and even performed vasectomies and, quote, prostate rejuvenations, end quote. In 1938, Morris Fishbean published a two-part article in Hygieia, a public health magazine published by the AMA, entitled Modern Medical Charlatans. In it, Fishbean refuted the effectiveness of goat gland procedures and questioned the ethics of Brinkley. This led to Brinkley suing him for libel, and let's just say it did not go well for him. The jury found in favor of Fishbean, with the judge ruling that Brinkley, quote, should be considered a charlatan and quack in the ordinary, well-understood meaning of those words, end quote. Now, this outcome, as one author put it, quote, won for the AMA the undisputed authority to set licensing standards for doctors nationwide, end quote, and helped to rid the country of these dangerous medical frauds. As for Brinkley, the loss led to a barrage of lawsuits, as well as an IRS investigation. After three heart attacks and a leg amputation for what sounds like peripheral vascular disease, Brinkley died penniless on May 26, 1942, from heart failure in San Antonio, Texas. All right, that ends the suture tale. Let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Let's move on to the xenotransplantation of organs. A critical step was the development of this surgical technique to connect blood vessels known as anastomosis. This is credited to the German surgeon and researcher Alexis Carell, see Podcast 20, who won the Nobel Prize in 1912 for this work. But before we get to transplanting whole organs with a proper blood flow, there's a bit more history to cover. In 1905, a child presented with acute renal failure in Bordeaux, France. The physician, Prince Tho, inserted slices of rabbit kidney into the patient, but they died 16 days later from lung congestion. The following year, Mathieu Jubilet of Lyon, France, transplanted the kidney of a pig into the antecubital fossa, or bend of the elbow, in a 48-year-old woman on January 24, 1906. Here he actually performed an anastomosis of the blood vessels. And while it did produce urine, Jaboulet had to remove the organ after three days because of thrombosis. This is considered the first true xenotransplantation experiment. But he wasn't deterred, transplanting another kidney, this time from a goat, into the elbow of a 50-year-old woman on April 9th of 1906. Sadly, but not surprisingly, the results were the same. It had to be removed within three days. A number of other attempts were made over the next decade, with the last in 1923, which was followed by a 40-year hiatus from xenotransplantation. And that brings us up to the swing in 60s and the resumption of both experimental and clinical efforts at transplanting organs from other species. Let's begin at the Tulane University in New Orleans, 
which had a regional primate center in the vicinity that brought in scientists' experience in primatology. Chimpanzees were chosen because of their close taxonomic relationship to humans, their range in size and renal function, which closely approximates that of man, and the fact that chimpanzees have been found to have blood types A and O, meaning they could possibly be universal donors, at least by blood group. And the logic at the time was that, with a shortage of donors and no other options, renal dialysis was not widely available at this time, this should be attempted. So on November 5, 1963, surgeon Keith Reemstma of Tulane University transplanted a kidney from a rhesus monkey into a 43-year-old dock worker named Jefferson Davis. This case marked the first time that immunosuppression was used, which included azathioprine, actinomycin C, prednisone, and total body irradiation. The patient died of pneumonia 63 days post-transplant. On January 13, 1964, a 23-year-old school teacher received a chimpanzee kidney. She survived for nine months, dying from acute electrolyte imbalance. This is actually the longest survival recorded for a xenotransplantation to date, and the absence of rejection suggested that this may actually be a feasible option. Thomas Starzl, an American transplant surgeon who, among other things, performed the first successful human liver transplant and established the clinical utility of the anti-rejection medications cyclosporin and tacrolimus, transplanted baboon kidneys into six humans as well as chimpanzee livers into three children, none of which had long-term success. Next up, the heart. At this point in surgical history, the race was on to become the first to successfully transplant a heart into a human. In the early morning of January 24, 1964, American transplant surgeon James Hardy at the University of Mississippi gave the heart of a chimpanzee named Bino to a 68-year-old man named Boyd Rush, a retired upholsterer and deaf-mute. After shocking the transplant around 2 a.m., it beat for between 60 and 90 minutes, the records are not clear, but ultimately failed and the patient died, having never regained consciousness. Apparently before beginning the operation, Hardy asked the four doctors assisting him to vote on whether or not to proceed. One said yes, one abstained, and the other two nodded yes. Clearly some backlash was anticipated, and Hardy was not wrong. One criticism was the fact that the possibility of using a chimpanzee heart was not included on the consent form, although Hardy claimed that he had included this in his discussion with Mr. Boyd's stepsister and the initial news of the operation did not reveal that the donor was a chimpanzee. When the public found out, there was a huge outcry from both the media and the medical community. In fact, Hardy withdrew from the handful of surgeons pursuing heart transplantation, a race that was ultimately won by South African cardiac surgeon Christian Bernard, who accomplished the feat, with a human donor, on December 3, 1967. See Podcast 78. But Hardy is considered the first to ever attempt a heart transplant. And speaking of cardiac surgeons, one of the most famous, American Denton Cooley, see podcasts uh, 85 and 87, tried unsuccessfully to transplant the heart of a sheep into a human. Now you may be starting to see a pattern here, but let's do one more, as this story is more about the recipient and was a media sensation. The patient was a 12-day-old female baby with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, a fatal birth defect where the left side of the heart is underdeveloped and cannot support circulation. Her name was Stephanie Faye Beauclair, but was known to the world as Baby Faye, in part to protect the family's identity at the time. 
She was born on October 14, 1984. At that time, it was essentially impossible to obtain human organs from infants to donate. And so, pediatric cardiac surgeon Leonard Bailey at the Loma Linda University Medical Center in Southern California decided to attempt a xenotransplantation. On October 26, 1984, a walnut-sized heart taken from a seven-month-old baboon was transplanted into baby Faye. At 11.35 a.m., the heart began to beat. The news triggered headlines around the world as well as protests from animal rights groups and hate mail to Dr. Bailey. Now, baby Faye had type O blood, a phenotype that essentially does not exist in baboons, and so she began to reject the heart from the AB type baboon. She died on November 15, 1984, just 20 days after the operation. But one year later, Bailey performed the world's first successful transplant of a human heart into a human infant on a patient known as Baby Moses. His real name is Eddie Anguiano, and he lived to be at least 35, which is the most recent age I can find. As far as I know, he is still alive. In the late 1980s, Dr. David Cooper, a heart transplant surgeon, argued that monkeys were not the best donors for humans as their hearts were not large enough to sustain a human adult body. He suggested that pigs would be more suitable donors, but his attempts were unsuccessful. This is partly due to the fact that pigs and humans diverged from a common ancestor 80 million years ago, forcing us to outwit evolution, as one writer put it. However, by the next decade, Cooper's lab had identified the sugar known as alpha-1,3-galactose on the surface of porcine, or pig, cells as the main trigger for the human immune system. This breakthrough led to the creation of genetically modified pigs with the gene for alpha-1,3-galactosyl transferase knocked out. This sugar, also called alpha-gal, is absent in apes, old-world monkeys, and humans, but is present in all other mammals. And, fun fact, or... Well, maybe not so fun. This is the same antigen that causes the red meat allergy. Let me explain. The lone star tick found in the southeast parts of the U.S. contains alpha-gal in its saliva. When it bites a person, the alpha-gal molecule enters the bloodstream and is recognized as foreign. Then the next time that person eats mammalian meat, other than primates, I guess, the body reacts to the sugar as foreign, causing an allergic reaction. In fact, these knockout pigs are also being developed for consumption by people with this allergy. Unfortunately, it was discovered that pigs can carry the porcine endogenous retrovirus, or PERV for short, that had the potential to infect human cells and, sorry for this, unleash a deadly human pandemic. And we all now know, sadly, how that would play out. However, gene editing may help solve this issue. Another area of xenotransplantation that we haven't covered is the use of islet cells. These cells reside in the pancreas and are responsible for the production of insulin, among other things. Okay, real quick, it's time to get pimped. Part of the show where I ask you a bit of medical trivia. What is the name of the type of islet cells that make insulin? And bonus, can you name other types of islet cells and their products? The answer is... Beta cells make insulin and amylin. Alpha cells produce glucagon. Delta cells make somatostatin. Epsilon cells, ghrelin. And finally, PP or gamma cells make pancreatic polypeptide. Now their destruction, meaning the beta cells, leads to diabetes, and it turns out that pig insulin differs from human insulin by only one amino acid. 
Carl Gustav Groth was a Swedish surgeon who had worked with Starzl in the first successful liver transplant operation and acted as the chief of transplantation at the renowned Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. In 1993, he and his team became the first to attempt pig islet transplantation in diabetic patients. Unfortunately, no clinical benefit was obtained. So where does that leave us? Firstly, the advantages of xenotransplantation remain true. There would be an essentially unlimited supply of organ donors, relieving the massive shortage that exists today. The organs would be available whenever required, unlike now, where patients languish on wait lists for organs to become available, typically through some tragedy experienced by the donor. The damage done to organs during brain death of the donor, which can lead to graft non-function, would be eliminated. Modern molecular genetics has allowed us to knock out specific genes, allowing for designer genetically modified large animals. And a very exciting development occurred just a few months ago. At the NYU Langen Health Center, transplant surgeon Dr. Robert Montgomery, himself a heart transplant recipient due to inherited cardiomyopathy, transplanted a kidney from one of these pigs that has had the alpha-gal sugar genetically deleted into a brain-dead recipient as a proof of concept. Let me get into some detail. The recipient had been registered as an organ donor, but their organs were deemed unsuitable for donation, so the family consented to the operation. On September 25, 2021, the pig kidney was attached to blood vessels in the upper leg of the recipient and placed in a protective shield so that it could be observed and sampled. The kidney almost immediately began to produce urine and over a 54-hour period showed normal function with no evidence of rejection and was then removed. Now, as an aside, the pig's thymus, an organ that plays an important role in the immune system by sort of teaching lymphocytes what is self and not self, was also transplanted to reduce the possibility of rejection. So that is the most recent of what hopefully is a continued march towards successful xenotransplantation. Of course, we haven't even touched on some of the ethical considerations to xenotransplantation, which is a legitimate consideration. But for the thousands and thousands of people waiting for a tissue or organ donation right now, this offers some hope for a solution. In the meantime, I encourage all of you to consider signing up to become organ donors. Now that wraps up this episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. As per usual, I have a few irons in the fire, so you'll have to wait and see what's next. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at SurgeryLegends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, but your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.